Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast, where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. Today, I'm talking to Swedish writer-director Ruben Usland about his career and his most recent film, Triangle of Sadness. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So both my co-host Kelsey and I, who couldn't be here today, she really wanted to, to meet you. We've talked about your films a lot in our, on our conversation show. We love talking about your films, and we've had great experiences watching Triangle of Sadness in packed theaters, uh, especially this past one <laughs> and eating and drinking in theaters too. That's just been uh, a ton of fun. And I was curious, what has your experience been like uh, with Triangle of Sadness as opposed to your other films in the past few years with all the awards and all the attention for it right now? How is everything going? Um, it's going really, really good. Um, all the cinema distributors uh, are happy. And uh, yeah. it's a great thing like post pandemic um to manage to do the film that have uh, attracted the, the largest audience of of all my films so yes i really wanted to try to achieve that and yeah so that is that is really really pleasant for me people are people are working in the industry are getting like energy and uh, uh are happy about like the, how people are re- uh, receiving the film basically so I think this film and uh, all of your movies really are incredibly observational. You're obviously highly interested in social institutions is probably the best term and the role that they play in creating order and chaos uh, in our human life. And most of your films interrogate what that kind of controlled chaos does to the human psyche. So I'm curious, what inspired you to make films that are targeting certain hypocrisies of social behavior did you find yourself gravitating towards psychology in school or early on in your filmmaking career or being interested in social experiments because your movies often feel like experiments well i i have to go back to my mom actually uh she was a primary school teacher and she became a left wing during the 60s and was very interested in in marx and uh uh, Marx was also one of the founders of sociology, and uh, yes. during my upbringing, I remember that my mother was telling me about sociological experiments that she actually performed on her students or on her pupils in school. So oh, wow. there's this one classic um, experiment called uh, the Solomon Ash conformity test, where the test person is supposed to point on lines with, and tell which is the longest line. Uh, so the test person gets two options and it's very easy to see which one is the longest but then the group that is in the room at the same time they should say that the shortest line is the longest mm-hmm. and uh, very, very quickly we also, of course conforms and and uh, the test person is then changing and actually pointing on the shortest line in order to um, yeah fit into the group basically so this was yeah. something I had with me from early age uh, and I think when I think about it now and I'm trying to find an explanation why I'm interested in the different uh, kind of topics and the approach that I have in my in my movies, I have to go back to that. Yeah. I mean, that kind of reminds me of your film Involuntary, the 2008 film, I believe, with the teacher in the classroom, actually. Yeah, I can tell you that is that is basically completely inspired of uh, that's yeah. why I was 16 years old and my mother told me she told me that, uh, yeah, with her third grade pupils, she had 
tried out these experiments. And I was like, how can you do that? How can you <laughs> let people <Yeah. laughs> let people have to deal with this this situation? Uh, so it laid, it it made it made a mark on me definitely. So another element that interests me in your films is that they are unapologetically sort of deconstructing what it means to be civilized and you pinpoint contradictions in social interactions and then you illustrate them in these like hilarious ways, absurd ways, satirical ways, especially when it comes to your last three films in Force Majeure, The Square and Triangle of Sadness. And even though all of your films are full of dark humor, there is one of your movies that is pretty tragic and grounded. It might be my favorite of yours, which is 2011's Play. I find that if there is a through line in your work uh, or in your writing, it's probably in play. And that film technically places you, the audience, in a very odd bystander perspective and in, in the effect in which you shoot from a, a long distance and you almost capture that bystander effect for the audience, not just the characters in the movie. And then through your writing, you're placing the viewer in a morally difficult situation too. And I read this film's deeper message as, you know, play as more of an indictment on authority and a critique on adults than I do of the movie's social and identity elements it's so often talked about for. What's fascinating about play, if listeners haven't seen it, is that the adults or the, the supposed like informal authority of any working country are basically failing at their job of being responsible for the youth, in this case, both groups of boys in this movie. So would you say it's fair to think about all of your films through the lens of exploring play's central theme of the fact that maybe we're all complicit in letting others be exploited. Like we are the reason like the social contract going to more like political philosophy stuff since your, your mother was a teacher. Uh, what is interesting to you about that kind of failing social contract part that you keep coming back to in so many of your movies? Well, first of all, I can say that I have a very positive view on human beings. Uh, I think that okay. uh, one of the, how to say, strongest aspect of being a human being is that we are quite good in collaborating. We are quite good in taking care of each other. Uh, but in my movies, I'm more interested in when we fail. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so I, I look for situations where I can identify uh, with the failure myself and, and the setup of a situation where very often the characters ends up in a dilemma that there are two or more choices, but none of the choices are easy to make and all of them have consequences. Mm -hmm. And when it came to play, play was inspired of events that took place in my home city, Gothenburg in Sweden, where it was a group of young robbers that was uh, robbing other kids in a big mall in the center of the city. And um, uh, these robberies, they took place in, in broad daylight, a lot of people in these malls, uh, uh, a lot of adults. But the bystander effect was very, like, you could tell that people were not interacting. They didn't yeah. take responsibility. And uh, it was very seldom that the kids that got robbed were asking other people for help. Uh, so uh, these robbers, they did this, like, rhetorical trap where they said, uh, okay, can I watch you? What, what time is it? And then the, the victims put, take out their phone, and immediately when the robbers see the, 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 the mobile phone, they go, hey, where did you get that from? My kid brother was robbed the other day. <laughs> and then they are creating a problem that doesn't exist, of course. They're accusing the, the victims that they have stolen the kid brother's uh, mobile phone. And it, they played roles as good cop and bad cop. 
and uh, uh, then they give a solution for the victims and it's saying yeah but we can go and show the phone for the kid brother he's just on another street here and uh, follow us <laughs> and then uh, 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 the victims were, were almost all of the cases following the robbers even though they knew that this is completely bullshit to right. a back street where there was no people there and there they got robbed on their on their belongings and i i think that for me i got very interested in the attitude change that that was in the swedish society because my father had told me like when he was six years old he was brought up in the center of stockholm uh, his parents put an address tag around his neck or on his clothes and send him out to play on the streets of Stockholm. And this was during the, the 50s. So at that time, we looked at other people, other adults, as someone that would help our children if they ended up in, in, in problems. But today in Sweden, we tend to look at other adults as someone that is threatening our children. So the social contract looks completely different today. And it was like the kids' world and the adults' world were taking place on two completely different parallel levels, uh, parallel universes that was uh, uh, running next to each other. So, and that, I mean, the, the experience of play, the research of play and making play brought me to make The Square. And mm -hmm. uh, The Square was based on an idea that me and a friend of mine had. We wanted to create a symbolic... Uh, place or a symbolic um, sign that should uh, remind us of our responsibility of fellow human beings. What are the biggest challenges in running a museum? We're a museum of modern and contemporary art, so we need to present art that is the art of today, art that is absolutely cutting edge and the competition is fierce. If you place an object in a museum, mm. for instance, if we took your bag and placed it here, would that make it art? Ah. Okay. And uh, the idea was to create a, a white marked square that we put in the center of the city and that we should uh, uh, build a social contract that if someone is standing in that square, it's my obligation to address that person if I see that person. So I have to go up, I have to ask, what is going on? How can I help you? Uh, basically, like similar to the traffic rules, you know, a zebra crossing have a very strong social contract where the cars are uh, being careful with the pedestrians in most of the different cultures around the world. Uh, and I thought it was interesting with the debate that followed on the square because a lot of people are saying like it's not that easy it's no 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 these yeah. questions are much much more complex but if you look at the, the kind of agreement that we do on the traffic routes everybody's driving on the right side of the road when i'm like it's amazing it's amazing that people mm -hmm. are driving on the right side of the road <laughs> and it's weird and uh, we managed to change from left-hand traffic to right-hand traffic in the 60s 67 we decided to have right-hand traffic instead and from one day to another, all the Swedes started to drive on the right side of the road. And there were fewer accidents uh, the upcoming months than it had been in the history of traffic. It says something about our, our ability to organize ourselves and adapt to a, a social contract that I think is quite fantastic. So it, it, yeah. I, I love to go in to look at the, our behavior from this perspective. Interestingly, I think a lot of people have picked up on this, that triangle is is dealing with even 
more layers of themes, but you still keep that as a, as a root core of it about the social contract. So let's talk about Triangle of Sadness. It's one of many allegories. I don't know if you've picked it up on this, but satires or allegories in 2022 that have been talking about on the surface at the very least about the rich, the way that the wealthy get away with a lot of things, the ultra elite and the privileged. But like, obviously your movie has a lot more on its mind, but that's just been a big through line of 2022 in general. For example, in the first act, there is this fascinating exploration of privileged, like postmodern culture of what we value, like beauty over intelligence. And underneath those elements, there are interesting comments on gender roles and a specific interpretation of feminism that you come back to toward the end of the movie. And you really get the audience adjusted in the first act to your film language. And so many of our listeners loved our conversation on Triangle that uh, my co-host and I just had recently because we kind of try to dive into those ideas a lot. Uh, But you really play with these micro contradictions that many of us share. And then as you transition into your second act, which is probably my favorite, you give us this clear social class hierarchy on the yacht. And then you begin to prepare audiences for what the third act is interested in. But then the second act ends with probably my favorite part, which is this captain who is a self-loathing Marxist, (laughs) who is uh, hilariously the head of a fancy yacht with greedy elites and supermodels beneath him and the captain gets drunk with his new sad friend. Thank you. I have one joke. Do you know how to tell a communist? Mm. It's someone who reads Marx and Lenin. And do you know how to tell an anti-communist? It's someone who understands Marx and Lenin. It's Ronald Reagan, funny guy. Uh, never argue with an idiot. They'll only bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. Mark Twain. Oh, okay. Ronald Reagan, he said also, socialism works only in heaven where they don't need it and in hell where they already have it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty huh? good, yeah. yeah. Okay, hold on, got one here. Oh, 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 no, I have one. Growth, for the sake of growth, is the ideology of a cancer cell. That's Edward Abbey. Listen, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money. Ah. Margaret Thatcher. Ah, you're gonna like this one. The last capitalist we hang will be the one who sold us the rope, Karl Marx. Oh. Okay, 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 okay. Dear God. (laughs) Okay, classic. Uh, The most powerful single force in the world today is man's eternal desire to be free and independent. Kennedy. Okay. Freedom in capitalist society always remains about the same as it was in ancient Greece. Freedom for slave owners. I know. Vladimir Lenin. School. Ah. <laughs> Russian capitalist and an American <laughs> communist. Oh. On a $250 million lecture. Both the Marxist and the Reaganite of sorts turn into like political ideologues shouting on at everyone on the yacht. And it's incredibly well written because, uh, and directed because you are showing, uh, these two people just arguing about their politics while everybody beneath them is just struggling and shit. How difficult was it for you 
to not focus on one idea of the movie more than another. Like, cause you really blend a lot of different things going on in this film. And it's really almost like a thematic puzzle in that way. And the way it's layered, did you find it difficult in writing all these different ideas in different acts? Or did you find that maybe the directing was more difficult or was it pretty seamless for you because you've been doing this for so long? No, but I think that every new project that I'm working on, of course, you want to challenge yourself. Uh, uh, because if you feel safe as a director, I don't think you bring out uh, the best qualities of you directing. So yeah. when I started to make Force Majeure, it was a big step for me f- and leaving the kind of aesthetics that was in play and to do a, do a feature film about the square and the concept of the square, this art piece was a big challenge for me when I did the square. And then in Triangle of Sadness, I wanted to push it even further. I wanted to make a more wild, more entertaining, more thought-provoking film. And I came up with a concept quite early in the process that it should start in the fashion world, go to luxury yacht, and then end on a deserted island. So when I was writing the script, it took a long time, of course, to write it in a way so I could read the script in one go and feel this is fitting together like one, one movie. But mm. for me, when I... Think about it. Uh, I actually think that the um, the elements of the film is simple because we have the 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 the, the male and the female model that we follow through the film. Okay, we leave them sometimes, but but we're always coming back to them. And then I have in the core of the film there's a thematic that I'm that I'm looking on uh, beauty as a currency. Uh, and sexuality as a currency. So if you go back and look at the different scenes. And you have that in your mind. You can see that basically every each and single scene or are is about uh, that and about hierarchies and about like a materialistic view on on our behavior. Um, so, but but I can also understand that the first time that you watch the film that the film is challenging the audience in a way that I think is hopefully positive because I want the audience to be on their toes. They should never be safe. Yeah. Like okay, where are we going? Like, what is this scene about? What what is what are going to happen now? Uh, I want to activate the audience uh, because for me that is such a big part of cinema. Like, the reason that we are sitting and watching something together uh, is that afterwards, when we are leaving the cinema, we should have a great conversation about what we have what what we have watched. We should process the images. We should actually reflect on them. We and we should be critical to them and. Uh, uh, especially these times where we uh, consume basically all moving images on individual screens. So uh, uh, normally when we look at the moving images, we're sitting by ourselves and like dopamine scrolling like this, and it Mm -hmm. doesn't demand us to do any reflection on the content, which I really think is going to have consequences of of who we are and and how we will behave in the future. And um, uh, so it's an aspect of cinema that I'm trying to, you know, really use the fact that we're sitting together and watching something. And I want to really want the audience to have an experience when it comes to that. And definitely Mm -hmm. thought provoking is a part of, of the culture of cinema for me. Well, it's interesting to hear you talk about the the kind of like non challenging way that you're weaving these themes through, because when watching it and experiencing with a theater and a group of friends that I've talked to about this movie and trying our best to what what fans do of films, which is over intellectualize everything we watch. We're really trying to understand each uh, act and what it's, what it's saying and how it's connecting. 
it reminds me actually of one of your more personal films what we just talked about uh 2008's involuntary uh for listeners who haven't seen that you wrote kind of like five parallel stories that all share a common theme about group behavior and critiques on conformity out of fear not necessarily respect for authority and you illustrate a sort of unhelpful hierarchy that you come back to in the third act of triangle of sadness And in this third act, you have this microcosm of hierarchy where one character makes a mistake, another witnesses that mistake, and someone else is in charge of all these people, and they decide the consequences. But you subvert expectations of hierarchy because you flip the traditional patriarchal pyramid that we're so accustomed to seeing. So instead of class hierarchies based on wealth, beauty, and patriarchy, you create a sort of fictional hierarchy where the historical understanding of the constructs of gender are sort of reversed. So the movie kind of presents this matriarchy, I think is literally said in the film, that was born out of survival. And in this hierarchy based on survival, you still have like an oppressive autocrat on top kind of telling everybody what to do. Even if it is a a woman of color on top, this person that historically has been marginalized and at one point in the film was oppressed, but now she is on top. So was your thought process focused on trying to illustrate how corrupt hierarchies are and how that can even make people who've been oppressed an oppressor because Abigail's character seems to represent a few interesting ideas that I think people I've talked to who watch this, like even now, we get to stream it now here because it's been in theaters for a while. Um, But people keep coming back to that character and what she represents at the end of your film. Is that really just a representation of how hierarchy can be toxic in that way? There's an artist that have made an art piece where it says the abuse of power comes as no surprise. And I think it says something about us. Um, I think that if we want to create an equal society and uh, be equal towards each other, it's an ongoing struggle. It's something that we're always going to have to fight for. And I think it's a little bit of a, how to say, cliche middle class idea that uh, poor people are nice and rich people are egoistic and mean. Because um, it, it's almost like a way of like, how do you say, accepting the kind of class society that, that we live in. Yeah, at least the poor people, they are living the genuine, true lives where spirit where they are spiritual. And the rich people, they are, are egoistic and, and artificial. But rich people are very generous to other rich people. They, they, they know how to collaborate to, to maintain their position. Then I also had an idea about like, you know, and when you have a corrupt society and you have a totalitarian uh, uh, system, uh, if you look at like the countries like in, in South America, when they have had revolutions and then they are trying to replace the government and build a new democratic solidaric society, they very often fail. And this is, of course, because you have in the back of your bone like a certain kind of system, and it's very hard to break free from that. And it's a romantic uh, idea that uh, as soon as the working class is going to take over the society, it's going to be fair and uh, and equal. It It's very mm-hmm. hard to build uh, a society where we don't have corruption. It's very hard to build a society where we are solidaric towards each other. And it takes a long, long, long time. And uh, uh, for me, when Abigail is taking the power, she's she's basically doing a revolution because normally in situations when it comes to survival, we we re- we tend to work really well together and we're accepting the old hierarchies. But I didn't want to uh, make the film play out in that way. I actually wanted mm-hmm. Abigail to, to do a revolt and 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 uh, take the opportunity and and be on top of the uh, of the hierarchies. Uh, 
but it was important for me to not not portray her then in a in a in a romantic way and uh, tell those old uh, uh, say cliche stories about um, uh, uh, the the good working class that is like yeah. going to be generous and fair to everybody. Yeah, your movie proves that we're always going to be stealing pretzels, no matter what political system we belong to. Uh, <laughs> Speaking of this this act and maybe the way it's provoking audiences, do you ever get worried about making challenging movies that are purposely provoking the audience this way? Like Play, for example, were you worried about the way people would perceive your motivations or intentions making that film? Like when I watch your film, I notice that you will sometimes use maybe like a hypocritical element of social or civil rights issue as a vehicle, like in this movie with Triangle Sadness, maybe feminism, to explore uh, an equally or more complex social dilemma. And I know at the heart of your movies, the intention to me at least is always about that bystander effect or holding people responsible for helping others. Or I think what you call in Sweden, it's civil courage, I believe it is. But with all that in mind, do you still find it challenging to bring out each new film because of how socially difficult the films are and what the messages are because of the way people might think about your motivations as an artist or your intentions? No, I have not actually felt that that have been hard for me. I mean, I think that I, I think a lot about what kind of questions that I'm uh, that I'm posing and and what my position in is when it comes to what plays out in the film. And for me, it's important to have an answer on that. And when I feel I have an answer on those things, I I I feel secure enough to 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 provoke. And but provocation mm. itself is it's hard and. It's uh, it's easy to provoke with. There are some topics that are very easy to provoke with, and it's necessarily not that I want to go into it. For example, when it came to play, um, uh, the reason that I wanted to make that film from the beginning was the setup that was in the uh, robbers that it was inspired of in Gothenburg. The, the robbers had one thing in common, and it was that they were black. And mm. uh, just the image of five black boys robbing other boys in the center of the city, very often white middle-class boys, of course, is an image that we even have a hard time to talk about. And uh, uh, then it's very important to me to talk to a lot of people that knows a lot about these these topics, about uh, how we portray skin color, uh, all of these things in order to understand what my standpoint is. Um, Mm. but, But I always have a starting point in that I get irritated of a certain kind of discussion that is going on in our in 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 the public in in media or in between people that I don't agree on and that I feel that here I want to be an agitator you say like someone that is agitating uh, and trying to shake up and give some oxygen to this like uh, oxygenless pond that uh, sometimes. Uh, 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 thoughts and theories and so on can can end up in uh but but there are some there are some mm, topics that i that i don't feel that is a reason to go in and provoke when it comes to today because it's also like this you know every time it comes a new generation uh of uh, film critics debaters journalists and so on 
uh, they are going to react on the same way as previous generation did when they were young. So <laughs> everybody have to grow up in some way when we are discussing these different things. So so some topics you're just going to go into a dead end when you need, when you need to to meet some people that are, are trying out their theories and uh, defending things and like trying to stand up against uh, people that are uh, exploited or etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So. Um, it, it is something that I that I'm that I'm dealing with in, in a careful way today. I'm definitely. No, you for sure are. That's why I asked. Just because I think uh, American audiences and American filmmakers usually hide their vulnerability when they have a serious social point to make behind maybe like a genre film, like a horror film or something of that nature. Uh, and so that's why I ask because you seem very authentic in what you're trying to you know, say. And I've, often I think just like how my American lens just on the movie, I got nervous, like uh, sweaty palms watching your movies. Just cause I'm like, are you sure we want to talk about this? But it's just a different <laughs> different lens completely from my perspective. Um, can you tell me anything about your newest film that you're working on? I believe it's set on a plane and there's a lot of stress involved. Yes, uh, it's, uh, it's a feature film that is going to be called The Entertainment System is Down. Okay. And uh, it takes place on a long haul flight. If you think one of these that is maybe 17 hours, London to Sydney or yeah. Um, and quite soon after takeoff, uh, the passengers gets the horrible news that the entertainment system is not working. So when the iPads and the iPhones and so on is charging out, we have modern human beings that is doomed to this analog boredom where they don't have this dopamine distraction that we usually can can have to, uh, uh, how to say, not being exposed for our own thoughts. So mm -hmm. I'm going to look a little bit on, on modern human beings and what happens when we take away this gadget that we have been so addicted to. And uh, uh, it's not going to end well, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very excited for that. So we end every conversation with a fun recommendation for the listeners by asking you what a film or show that you believe deserves extra credit is. So we try on this podcast, the extra credits, we try and spread awareness of why meaningful films or shows deserve extra credit and why people need to go check them out. Like Triangle of Sadness, that's why we've talked about it so much on this conversation show. Some other directors or writers this year, like Helena Rain from Bodies, 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 talked about The Piano Teacher. Zach Kreger from Barbarian this year talked about St. Maud and Audition. Uh, Seth Reese, which is a writer from The Menu, which is another satire that recently came out. He talked about Rocky and why that deserves more love. Is there a movie in your back pocket that you think of when giving advice for what people should watch next? Something that, that you think deserves extra credit for more people to talk about? Uh, that comes from this year or? Uh, anything that comes to mind in your life, anything that you think that, you well, know, you're at a bar with friends and someone's like, I need to see a good movie. But like, you need to go check this out. I, I, I'm coming back to Milus Forman uh, when I'm watching movies and he's one of the greatest directors for me and I love his um, perspective of us on us humans, his, his mm -hmm. warmth and he's a very different filmmaker than me but I re-watched Once Flew Over the Coconest uh, quite recently and uh, I was like completely so impressed of after the first 10 minutes when I was trying to figure out what have I just experienced uh, how much and how rich was were these two, first 10 minutes and uh, uh, it, it's something that really impresses me uh, that I could get that rich feeling uh, of these first 10 minutes and if I compare it to other filmmakers like myself and um, um, I think it's 
it's something about that film in the casting, in the characters uh, that is so balanced and uh, so well performed. And the, how to say, the forgiveness towards his gaze on human beings and our behavior and our failures. And it's just uplifting to watch in these times also, if you think about the content that is in uh, once uh, flew over the cocoa nest and and uh, the ingredients that he's working with and the characters and like to see someone deal with this kind of content today would be very very interesting because I think it could be a massive uh, shitstorm basically towards uh, someone that was trying to do that film today. But he does it in a way mm-hmm. that you can't like you can't you can't attack him. You can't say, hey, <laughs> you know what, what about right. like uh, the ethics and Gives such an, he has such an understanding uh, about us and it's just beautiful to see and I, I, I would recommend everyone that has maybe seen this film back in the days to watch it again yeah I will I'm going to watch it again now I might watch it tonight uh, my last thing I wanted to note to you because it's been a great conversation thank you for coming on there's two movies that reminded me that felt inspired by your film one I know for a fact was inspired by your work uh, Force Majeure uh, but there was a movie, I think it was a Dutch film, but it's uh, Speak No Evil, I believe. Uh, I recommend if you haven't checked that out this year, that seems heavily inspired by a lot of the themes that you've talked about in your movies. But there's another movie out of Britain called All My Friends Hate Me. I don't know if you've heard of this. It just came out this year. It's directed by Andrew Gaynord. Yes, I know. I've heard about it. I've definitely watched it. Tom Sturton, who is the lead actor and writer in that film, and Tom Palmer, the co-writer, said that they were inspired by force majeure to to make the movie and your work to make that film and i thought you'd like to hear that because you're already having a you know young directors working out here who are inspired by some of your work and uh, i recommend checking that out if you ever if if you ever have two hours to kill i know you're busy (laughs) no but thank you so much for telling me because it's it's of course one of the things that you get really really happy when you hear and uh i i really want to uh, say thank you to these directors and writers and and i definitely would check their film yeah i'll pass that along well best of luck at the european film awards on saturday as well as any other award shows that you have coming up the next few months and everything else you're probably going to be seeing at the academy hopefully and if you don't win any awards i'm hoping we can get a swedish director freaks out number three video on youtube possibly coming (laughs) soon i want you to win your awards so i hope there's no video but you know we'd always love the number three um, I'll put the links to those videos in the description if nobody knows what I'm talking right. about. Some of your best work. <laughs> I will definitely do a, a third part of that. Definitely. It's a good idea. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Ruben. Thank you for speaking with me and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah, Trey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Bye.